Uh, hello, everyone. This is the Contemplating Christian. This is Samuel and Will. We're going over the value of general revelation today, um, specifically as Herman Bavink does in his book, The Wonderful Works of God. Mm -hmm. oh, we're actually going to start with a quote from him. All right, so it says, in determining the value of general revelation, one runs the great danger either of overestimating or of underestimating it. So uh, we have two extremes. Almost all the time, people go to one of the two extremes. Some people go to one extreme and saying that general revelation can reveal so much that people can be saved through it. Um, some people go to the other extreme and say that it's really just useless and that we don't even need it. We don't have to use it in any way and it's not useful. We just focus on scripture and special revelation and we're good. All right, we're gonna hit right in the middle of there. All right, so we're gonna go over the themes for chapter four. Will? All right, so what Samuel was just talking about, we need a balanced view of general revelation. Uh, some become too fixated on the world around us and they lose sight of Christ or scripture, or we can focus solely on special revelation to the exclusion of God's true glory in the world around us. So we're seeking a balanced view of that. And Herman Bobbing says that in his day, and I think that this is similar to us right now, the particular danger is losing sight of special revelation of God in Christ by basically denying the uniqueness of who he is and his miracles. Uh, so just basically denying special revelation, and that's how we negate it. Today, I think we're kind of in that spot today as a culture. That picture, that is from Pilgrim's Progress, if anybody's read Pilgrim's Progress. It's when he sees the cross and the burden falls off his back. Really, really nice picture. But because of, uh, in general revelation, because of the goodness of God's creation, but our fallenness and the fall of man, our world comes to us in a strange con a mix of contrast between wrath and grace and blessings and curses. So the way Bobbing puts it, which is really interesting. He says, we live in a strange world, a world which presents us with tremendous contrasts, the high and the low, the great and the small, the sublime and the ridiculous, the beautiful and the ugly, the tragic and the comic, the good and the evil, the truth and the lie. These are all heaped up in unfathomable interrelationship. The gravity and the vanity of life seize, us, seize on us in turn. Now we are prompted to optimism, then to pessimism. Man weeping is constantly giving way to man laughing. The whole world sta strands, stands in the sign of humor, which has been well described as a laugh in a tear. So really interesting way of describing our world. So because of God's grace and God's wrath, because of the curse of the fall, but also the blessing of creation, our world is just a mix of extremes of just uh, great good and great evil. And so this, because due to our sin, God is always manifesting his wrath and hatred for sin in our world. And at the same time, he's always manifesting his grace in our world. So wrath and grace, curse and blessing almost seem to meld together in life. For example, think of like our work as human beings. Our work is both a blessing and a curse. It causes sweat in our brow. It's a good thing. And it's also a curse. It can be a curse to us. And we see that in the, in the fall of man ultimately. So the cross is the meeting point of the most awful wrath and the richest grace at the same time. It's sort of the meeting place of all these extremes. It's the reconciliation of all of these contrasts and the beginning of the recreation of the world. That's what Bobbing says. I think it's a really interesting way to look at the cross. It reconciles all strange contrasts in the world. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah, you can definitely put it like that. Uh, next, we have sort of the next big theme is him just kind of working through the early chapters of Genesis, uh, particularly after the fall of man in that uh, like Cain and Abel and then their descendants, sort of that section. And we call this the primeval foundations of history. So primeval just means like kind of first things, uh, the primeval foundations of history. And just simply, if you read this part of uh, Bobbing's book, you'll just be struck by the depth of information and uh, all the depth of things that are within these first 11 chapters of Genesis is really very rich stuff. And so to kind of describe what I'm talking about here, he says the creation of the world, this is all the stuff that's happening in the first few chapters of Genesis, the creation of the world, the forming of man, the history of paradise and of the fall, the punishment for sin, the first announcement of God's grace, uh, public worship, the beginnings of culture, the flood, the building of the Tower of Babel. These are these all are treasures which mankind has carried along as part of its equipment in its journey through the world. Hence, it need cause no surprise that traditions of these events, be it often in very distorted forms, turn up among various peoples of the earth. The history of mankind has one common beginning and is built up on a broad common basis. So we have basically in the beginning of these early chapters, we see original religion start to form between Cain and Abel. So Bavin kind of talks about how Cain uh, kind of represents the wicked man and Abel represents the righteous man in the church ultimately. And then their descendants kind of follow in their wake. So the Cainites, we'll talk about this a little bit in the next slide too, the Cainites turn increasingly more wicked and the Sethites kind of prefigure the church. It's sort of a prefiguring of the church and the world. It's a very interesting um, kind of symbolism there. They symbolize the righteous and the unrighteous. So the first examples of true and false religion. Cain offers, uh, or sorry, Abel offers, I always get this wrong. Abel offers the proper sacrifice. Cain does not, I have it wrong in my notes. But more importantly, uh, Abel's heart is right before God and Cain's is not. So like he offers, Abel offers the proper sacrifice, which is the burnt offering, the actual animal parts. Um, but more importantly, his heart is in the right place before God. He's actually depending on God. Whereas Cain offers his, the, the fruit and uh, the fruit of the field and whatnot, and it's uh, not a proper sacrifice, and then he kills his brother. And then Seth is born to replace Abel, and the line of the Sethites is what kind of prefigures the church. They're the righteous line. So true religion has always been, what is the disposition of man's heart toward God? Does man recognize his dependence and respond to God in gratitude, or does he try to declare his independence from his creator? And then we have in Genesis 1 through 11, this primeval foundations of history. We have general and special revelation interrelated until Abraham. So here's what I mean by that. Um, so special revelation doesn't actually become particular until Abraham arrives and gets that promise from God. Everything before that, general and special revelation are kind of connected. So um, we actually have some examples of this. Uh, so starting with this picture, that's actually a picture of Leviathan mentioned multiple times in uh, in the Bible. Uh, one of them is in Psalms, one of them is in Job, um, and then I think there might be one other place. But basically, the examples are these old mythologies from ancient civilization. So uh, things like Tiamat, Leviathan, uh, the idea of creation. We have other writings like the Enuma Elish, and then also the Sumerian flood myth, and just a bunch of other things. So the reason Herman Boving says we have all of this is because general and special revelation are mixed. 
those first few chapters of Genesis, we don't have history established yet. So culture hasn't been established, tools haven't been established, none of these things have been put together or granted to man yet. So we get these stories popping up where they're close enough to the start of the universe and creation and everything like that where um, all these different cultures and peoples have similar stories. All right, so they're able to get a lot of the same ideas like creation. So um, we'll see a little bit more of this playing out in, in the next few slides, but that's why we would say they were mixed, okay? Mm -hmm. And why those ancient myths get quite a bit right, actually, and have so much in common with Genesis. Um, mm -hmm. It's because it's, again, all mixed together. Yeah. yeah. Just a little bit more on what I was already talking about, what we call the, the pre-flood church. Bobbing spends a lot of time on this. Um, and if you look at, like, Augustine's City of God, these terms, City of God and City of Man, uh, he traces this all the way back to, like, Cain and Seth, and they're kind of prefiguring the church and the wicked. Um, and so these two lines coming from Adam, the Sethites and the Cainites, foreshadowing the church and the world, the wicked and the righteous. The Cainites, they deny revelation. They deny God. They have increasing idolatry and moral degeneracy that just gets really, really, really bad up until the flood. Um, they trust in their own strength, particularly. That's like that the kind of the particular sin that's highlighted is that they live super long. They're very physically strong. They've got lots of longevity, and they basically just forget God and do their own thing, and they get really, really bad. So you basically see them put all their energy into building their own empire and turning from God. That's in Genesis 4. You see the creation of cities and music and culture and instruments and tools, but they're all built in vain. They're all built to the glory of man and not to God, and they're trusting in their own strength to save them. But the Sethites, we have a kind of a few that are mentioned. That's why the, it kind of gives a new sense of meaning to all these genealogies and stuff in Genesis that are sometimes we'll just kind of, our eyes will glaze over as we read genealogies because we don't really know what's going on. But when you see them as prefiguring the church and the, uh, the wicked, it's very, very interesting. Um, the Sethites represent the church. Genesis 4, it says, Seth, who replaced the righteous Abel, who offered the proper sacrifice, Seth fathered Enosh, and quote, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's in Genesis 4. Very, very interesting. So we have this line of righteous men that come from Seth, and they kind of represent the city of God as opposed to the city of man. We have like Enoch, who talks about he walked with God. That's all we know about him. Like one of the only things that's said is he walked with God, and then he ascends into heaven. We have Noah. I don't know how to pronounce that last guy's name, so I'm not going to try. And then Lamech. And you see in here the seeds of religion is what... Um, Robin talks about. So we have like worship, prayer, and sacrifice. All the kind of the seeds of religion that we have today were present there in, you know, rudimentary forms. So it just provides a whole depth of meaning to the early chapters of Genesis, which is really, really neat. All right, now we got the Noahic Covenant. This picture, by the way, is just a really cool picture. It's like modern art mixed with uh, iconic art. It's actually by Jonathan Peugeot. He's uh, He's a really famous painter right now in Christian circles. So I'd highly recommend looking into his stuff. But this is his uh, painting of Noah. He also does a lot of other uh, paintings based on, like, Eastern uh, Christianity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, all these points. First one is creation now rests on a covenant. So um, all the way up until this moment with Noah, we have... Basically, God's sheer will, just his sheer force of his will, 
kind of holding everything together. So nothing is really like obligating him to keep things going. But now that he sets in a promise with Noah after this flood and says, hey, I will not destroy man again with this flood. Um, now we have kind of this obligation that he gives himself. So not only is it held together by his will, but now it's held together. Everything is held together with this promise that he just made. And so from here on out, we actually see a couple of things that explains a couple of oddities we, we find in the beginning chapters of Genesis. Because a lot of people say um, stuff about like uh, giants and old age and all this, uh, all these weird details. They're like, how do you explain that? Well, Boving says this, laws of nature are chastened. So when God makes this promise, he kind of sets everything in um, more and solidifies it, okay? So he doesn't just kind of let everything go so the laws of nature are, are chastened, kept together a little more. So we don't see um, very wrathful natural events, so like uh, fire raining from the heavens or uh, giant floods everywhere or anything like that, or old age. All right, so that's, that's the first thing we see. Then he goes into this point of evil nature. Earlier in the story of Genesis, we just saw our evil nature expressed. So it was just starting to be, and God um, punished us for that. Then Genesis 8.21 and everything after this flood, it's just our evil nature continuing. All right. Now, God sees the evil condition of man the first time, and he obviously destroys them. But because of this promise, now that the evil nature is still continuing, he had this promise. Now we see more of his grace. We see more of this covenant, this promise, more of redemption and restoration um, later in Genesis and continuing. All right. And also at this point, when he makes this Noahic covenant and we get more grace, we also see conditions of culture starting to be fulfilled in the Bible. So that's when new types of writing come up. That's when we don't have these uh, like creation myths, flood myths, or, or, or anything like this kind of have in common with the Bible. So from this part of Genesis, we start getting more particular stories that um, other cultures don't have in common because now conditions for culture are met and we have history and tools and writings and all this other stuff. Yeah, that's what he says. Rainbow means God's not going to destroy us. <laughs> uh, okay, Babel, nations, and Israel. So the, there's a lot of rich symbolism and stuff related to the Tower of Babel, and Pavan talks a lot about it. So to read um, real quick from him, he says, this is about the Tower of Babel, for the first time in history, the idea arises here of concentrating and organizing against God and his kingdom, the whole of mankind in all its strength and wisdom, in all its art and science and culture. It was an idea which arose again and again later on, whose realization has been the goal of all kinds of allegedly great men in the course of the ages. So he's saying that not only is this a constant scriptural theme of man trying to supplant their role as a creature and trying to become God or trying to raise themselves to that status, that's a scriptural theme. It's also what's happening, I think, today, all the time. I think man is constantly trying to do this. Um, there's modern-day babbles all over the place. This might sound kind of conspiratorial, but I think that this is true today, that they're just a hallmark of our sinfulness. This is a constant, repetitive thing that we do. I think today of like people that want to start a sort of one-world government, okay? I think that enough is clear. You can go further more into conspiracies than that. But just the idea that there are people that want to have basically a unifying one-world governmental force 
uh, all the stuff going on with AI. Some of it's nefarious, I think. Some of it might not be. Uh, there's a whole transhumanism movement that wants to basically transcend our finiteness and our humanity and be able to live forever. That's a huge movement today. People are obsessed with that. The richest people in the world, I would say, are obsessed with that. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book, That Hideous Strength, talks a lot about this. The main theme in That Hideous Strength is that modern humans are doing what pre-modern humans used to try to do with magic, which is basically what we're doing with science and technology, they were doing with magic, which is basically trying to supplant our God-given nature and become God. That's what C.S. Lewis would argue, and I think that's happening all over today. Yeah, then we move on to probably the coolest point in this whole doc. I would say it's the coolest point in this whole doc, which is uh, God's preventative measures. Never thought of it like this before, but basically with the Tower of Babel, um, we have all of these people gaining unity, but the problem is, is it's on external means, okay? So it's because they all are, one, they have the same language, they have the same type of thinking, they have the same physiology and everything like that. So they unify based on external operations. That's what we would say. All right, now, God's preventative measures here is that he then confuses everything, all right? He separates people. He confuses the language. He confuses people's psyche. He confuses people's uh, physiology and everything like that. So now we have people speaking different languages. We have people thinking different ways. We have people even looking quite different from each other. And so this causes us to actually have competing nations develop and us to what we would call other each other. So um, these nations start going to war, start hating each other. They have uh, completely different cultures, languages, and ways they work. And so they have reasons to then hate other nations. Mm -hmm. All right. And we constantly try and find reasons to um, kind of separate ourselves from another person, whether it be on race, or sex, or um, language, or how cultural norms are done, whatever it is, we always find reasons to hate each other. So at this point, after God confuses everything, to find unity, we have to have um, something internally, all right? We have to have an internal operations of unification, which is done through the Holy Spirit. So now the only way we can get unity is through something happening within human beings. Okay, mm -hmm. so our hearts and minds have to be changed. That is the only way we get unity, which then is fulfilled in the church with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. We have the same mind. We have the mind of Christ. Um, we have a renewed heart and desires. We have uh, a will and desires that should be um, lining up with Christ's, and this is all done through the Holy Spirit uh, in the body of the church, and that's how we have that internal unity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is Absolutely. really cool. Amen. Yeah, so just touching on that at the end, is just uh, Israel is chosen then by God. And the purpose of all of this is not that God, like, he loves Israel because they're awesome and he hates the rest of the world. He's choosing Israel as a means by which to deliver a blessing to the entire world. So all the nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed that comes from Israel. And that, that seed is the uh, means by which the internal unification will happen. Eventually, we, the true Israel, those who have faith in Christ, are grafted into one church, united under one head, and are achieving internal unity. So that's all we got there. <clears throat> all right. We have, uh, we're calling this history's seal. And so we're going to go over a couple things. The first one, Will briefly mentions how, like, with that hideous strength in C.S. Lewis, we're kind of doing the same stuff people way back 
in the day used to do. So this uh, barbarian hypothesis, we're going to be calling um, the idea that ancient civilizations are barbaric and we're way better. We're, <laughs> we've progressed, time has gone by, and we've just developed more. So all ancient civilizations are just barbaric. So that's the barbarian hypothesis. So we're going to start going through. So Hermann Bavinck, first thing, he has this idea and he references uh, this German word right here, Weltanschauung, which kind of just means world picture. It's basically the term worldview for us. It's just how we see the world. All right. And he's saying that everybody has one. All people have them, even ancient civilizations and us now. All right. Now, as time has progressed and as we've made progress, that has stayed the same. But he would actually say things have devolved, not evolved. All right. Um, so these three terms up here, monotheism, polytheism and polydemonism. He would actually say, based on Genesis 1 and 1 through 11 and how all these cultures have this general slash special mixture of revelation, all people actually started with monotheism. And then as people started finding idols and getting more evil, they started giving things in nature, um, the, the likeness of, of gods, and they went to polytheism. And then they started getting into even more things where they started glorifying um, like different types of desires and fetishes and stuff like that, which would be polydemonism, all right? And they devolved that way. Um, a lot of uh, people say today that it was, uh, there was actually the opposite, that people way back then were just barbaric. They uh, started with like polytheism and polydemonism, and we just kind of came up with monotheism, and we kind of came up with religion. But Hermann Bavinck is arguing the opposite um, kind of transition right there. Sure. Mm. I think it makes sense biblically to just say um, monotheism is there from the beginning and idolatry is there from the beginning. Yeah. So right? all false religion. Like, all, so all false religion, kind of the marks of all false religion. Before I say that, just, um, yes, yeah, so this idea that in humanity today, we have this idea that we, uh, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, this idea that we've progressed so much or we don't need to read old books or we don't need to learn from the past because we have technologically progressed so much. And I think we all know that that's yeah, not really true. Um, way back in the day, like right in the early chapters of Genesis, we have all the marks of humanity. It's not like these people are just like cavemen. They have um, all the marks of culture that we have today. Basically, they're just in kind of rudimentary form. So they have reason and consciousness. They have will. They have understanding. They have family and community. They have tools and ornaments. They can communicate with each other via language. Uh, all the foundations of modern culture are basically there. They even have writing, they have astronomy to some extent, they have mathematics, they have calendars. Like we have parts of our like calendar system and our astronomy system go all the way back to like ancient Syria, Babylon, those sorts of cultures. And so um, it isn't that we, humanity just hasn't changed all that much actually. It has in one sense, in another sense, it hasn't. It's all the same sins, we're all of the same nature still. Um, and basically without, uh, only with general revelation, Bobbing's kind of getting at this, we all kind of go into these false religious paths. And all false religion has basically idolatry, 
we replace uh, truth about God for a lie, um, and we basically have a self-willed religion. The default of mankind without God is a self-willed religion, where we think we're pretty good, we can do this ourselves, that sort of a thing. We either trust in ourselves or trust in a bunch of other stuff that isn't God. And so there's no sense of the holiness of God, and therefore no sense of our own sin. Uh, we become the main character of everything, not God. And as kind of the bottom line of the, of the slide, history seal, historical record supports the biblical witness of the origin of man, the spreading of languages and nations, and the beginnings of culture in a plethora of ways. So that's kind of the main point. Interesting. That's a long one, huh? Yeah. Neat. All right. Religious reformers of history. Is this me? Yep, that's you, Will. Okay, so Bobbin kind of spends time uh, talking about, um, even in general revelation, he kind of lumps all of these uh, non-Christian religious leaders into one big group, and he kind of talks about each of them in a very interesting way. Um, and basically, he says that these people were, uh, like he talks about Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, and Zarathustra. Have you guys heard of those people? Some of them. Um, so, and basically how all of them were trying in some sense to reform the movements or the, the tribes from their own um, nations. There, there are religious reformers in one, in a true sense, there are religious reformers. And you could even say that they make some sort of improvements to their faith to some degree, but ultimately they all still fall short. And they all end up still, um, these, even though they have efforts of religious reform, they ultimately only differ in degree from the idolatries of the past, and they're kind of just repeating the same sins. The whole point is, all of the religions fail to truly understand the human problem of sin, and they fail to grab onto the only solution, which is God's redemption in Christ. And without special revelation, without God actually taking us by the hand and helping us out and saying, this is my word to you, this is my son, we're ultimately lost. So we need special revelation. Even though we can see that there was true value in general revelation, Without special revelation, we ultimately end up being lost. And we see that as these four um, kind of figureheads of these different religions uh, demonstrate that. That's Bobbing's point. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, then we're going to go to the terrain of general revelation. So what, does it get, what exactly does it cover? We would say uh, a couple things. So one, general revelation preserves humanity. So we have these things that uh, keep happening and um, don't, don't die out, really. Um, now, one of them is truth, one of them is goodness, and one of them is beauty. Those are the three transcendentals. Um, so those are preserved through general revelation. Uh, next is uh, family, state, and community. We would see things like that stay in all cultures and, and pop up. So when, when we go to different cultures, no matter what culture or nation or people group you go to, you kind of see these things right there. So that's evidence that general revelation has preserved those in human beings. Um, the next thing we would have to recognize is that even though general revelation preserves all of those things, uh, man still has darkness of mind and hardness of heart. All right, so we still have people in this world unable to comprehend the light. So we're going to read a couple Bible verses here. Um, starting with John 1.5, it says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then John 1.10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then it says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. All right? Mm -hmm. 
So it's just this idea that God is revealing himself, but we are foolish. We are hard of heart. We're darkness of mind. So to actually see this light or believe in Christ, we need that special revelation and the Holy Spirit renewing our minds and hearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we are naturally this way. Right, and the wisdom of the world says, basically, our path is man-made religion, and there's just enough light for man. General revelation gives us just enough light to declare our independence from God and to think ourselves self-sufficient. But the wisdom of God says God comes down to us and we are dependent upon him, which is the truth. And so all other religions end up saying in some form or another, do, save yourself, and Christianity ends up saying, done. God's done it. Trust in him. That's to distinguish Christianity from every other religion. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Application. Ending of First John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I think that's a good application. That's not just bowing down to statues today. Idolatry mm-hmm. comes out in a million different ways in our own hearts today. Mm-hmm. We are an idol-making factory, as John Calvin yeah. says. And this would be applying Bavinck's idea of monotheism devolving into polytheism mm-hmm. and all those other desires. I was actually just on YouTube yesterday and hearing about how there's like neo-pagans, like people like actually are like, like worshiping Norse mythology and stuff. I was like, I saw a whole YouTube channel that was about that. And people in the comments are saying, like, I just made my first sacrifice to Zeus today. And it wasn't a joke. I was like, oh, oh boy, that's a thing. So it's just, I mean, history just goes on a mm-hmm. cycle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And we have, yeah. we have Satanism and whatnot. So it's wild. keep yourselves from idols. Yeah. And then, too, appreciate general revelation. So we just went over what general revelation preserves. So appreciate truth, goodness, beauty, family, community, um, even even state in the uh, mm-hmm. nation that you're in and the government structure you have. Right, and then history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you keep what's good in the government and the evil that's trying to overcome it, try to overcome it with love and goodness. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that we should Amen. be doing as Christians in this nation. Like, yeah. I mean, there's some people that want to take a more hostile form of keeping our rights, but I mean... Look how Christ bought our freedom mm-hmm. from suffering. Yep. You know, like, I think the same should be true about Christians in our nation. But, I mean, there yep. may be a day where, dude, like, I mean, Troy's even talking about it, Pastor Troy. Like, I mean, there may be a day where they put Christians in prison in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we have the right underneath the law as it was written 200-some years ago to fight back. Mm-hmm. But, like, what would Christ have us do? That's something that I'm kind of curious about. That is a yeah. good good debate. Just right. to finish off, though. Last two application points. <laughs> history supports scripture. History supports the, the, the scriptural record. Uh, no need to fear about looking into the evidence of early mankind. Uh, and then lastly, Christianity makes sense of both the good and the bad in us. So that's about yeah. it. Yeah, and that would be technically, that's called the anthropological argument. Pascal says we have good and bad in us. Whatever religion we have or whatever worldview we have, it has to explain the good and bad in us. Mm-hmm. And Christianity reconciles that strange contrast that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. All right? So, Sweet. prayer. I'll pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you. You have revealed yourself in abundance to us, in creation, in the law within us, and in the events of history, and ultimately in the word incarnate, Jesus Christ. We pray that you keep us from idols and that we would fix our eyes and hearts on you alone. Amen. Amen.